Hello, everybody. My name is John McDonough. I'm on the faculty at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health in Boston. And welcome to Health or Consequences, a podcast of Commonwealth Magazine where we explore health policy as it relates to Massachusetts. And my partner in crime is Dr. Paul Haddis from the Tufts University School of Medicine. We are delighted to have as a guest today Rick Lord. Uh, Rick stepped down in May after 30? 28 and a half. 28 and a half <laughs> years as the president and CEO of Associated Industries of Massachusetts, one of the leading and most influential business associations in Massachusetts. And Rick has been a key participant in so many parts of health policy over these 28 years. And prior to AIM, you were the budget director for the House Committee on Ways and Means in the 1980s. So you had time inside government. Before that, you worked for General Electric. And that's your whole career trajectory. (laughs) Right. Uh, So we're delighted to have you. And we're we're kind of thinking of this as an exit interview for Rick (laughs) from his long and very distinguished career in business, government, and Massachusetts health policy. So just want to start, could you tell us a little bit about Associated Industries of Massachusetts, who it represents, what it does, and why it cares about and was involved in with you, uh, health policy in Massachusetts? Sure. And um, I want to just thank you, John and Paul, for inviting me to be here um, with you today. And and I can't tell you what a pleasure it's been to work with both of you all of these years on lots of health care policy issues, too. And that's one of the beautiful things about Massachusetts is that all the stakeholders tend to work together. Um, So a little about AIM. Um, We were founded in 1915 um, to represent the interests of manufacturers. So we were a one industry trade group up on Beacon Hill. And it was a time when unions were getting more organized and workers' comp laws were first being discussed and the state's manufacturers decided they needed to have a voice on Beacon Hill and they came together and created AIM. Um, We continued to be that voice of manufacturers until the late 80s when the board decided that we should become a more broad-based employer association. So um, about 30 years ago, we went from being a one-industry trade group to a broad-based employer association. Um, And so today, we represent, AIM represents, I want to say we, but um, AIM represents about 4,000 Massachusetts employers. some of the largest employers in the state, like Fidelity and Raytheon and Liberty Mutual, down to mom and pops and kind of everything in between. Um, we go from the Berkshires to the Cape um, and pretty much now reflect the Massachusetts economy in terms of the industry makeup. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about something a little controversial. Um, AIM is one of a number of business organizations in Massachusetts, and most of whom have national counterparts. So your national counterpart would be the National Association of Manufacturers or? Yeah, so I would say we're pretty active in two. Um, national Association of Manufacturers, which continues to be that, you know, one industry um, trade group, you know, manufacturing base. Um, since our membership now is broader, um, about 30% of our members are manufacturers, so 70% are in all the other um, facets of the economy here. We also participate with the U.S. Chamber, which whose membership is more broad-based. So um, I would say those are the two that um, we're active participants in, although we're officially not 
affiliated with them other than that we pay dues and our members. So there are other business voices that you've worked with. Uh, there's one called the Business Roundtable sure. that has a chapter in Massachusetts and is a national organization. Yeah. Um, just in later part of August, they came out with a major national statement that was signed by, I think, over 100 national CEOs. And they specifically rejected the idea that has been prevalent and popular in corporate America for almost 50 years now, that the sole obligation of the corporation is to benefit the shareholders and nobody else. And for the first time in 50 years, this organization has rejected that idea in favor of the corporation has an obligation to multiple stakeholders, including communities, employees, customers, and so forth. Mm-hmm. How, does, how does that controversy play out in the Massachusetts business community? Is it even a controversy? And how did you react and respond to what you saw out of the Business Roundtable last week? Yeah, so that's a great question, John. And, um, you know, obviously AIM wasn't part of that because we not part of the the business roundtable. Um, you know, certainly companies need to be um, responsive to their shareholders. Um, you know, those are the people who've invested in those companies to make them a going concern. Um, but I think if you talk to a lot of individual employers and particularly small to medium-sized ones, they view all of those stakeholders are in, as important to them, particularly their employees, which enable them to be successful, to their vendors, which are part of their supply chain, um, to their customers. So um, it was interesting that these major CEOs came out with this statement, but I don't think it necessarily is inconsistent with the views of lots of employers that they feel that they're they have obligations to represent all of their stakeholders in some way. Okay, great. Thanks, Paul. Let me, let me in some ways, jump off from that point, Rick. Even though mm-hmm. you're stepping back as the head of AIM, you remain on the state's health policy commission. That's thinking right. Thinking broadly about policy issue, issues, but also they're representing, in some ways, business views as an interest. Right. The yeah. seat I had, Paul, as you know, is is an employer seat. I was right. appointed by Auditor Suzanne Bump. So that is the seat that I'm filling. That, that you occupy. Yeah. And the HPC does oversee, on behalf of all of us, really, the state cost growth benchmark, which for these last few years, at least, have um, showed data showing healthcare spending overall un- under control. Wearing more your, your business employer hat, does that um, sense of being under control seem congruent with how businesses are experiencing things here in Massachusetts? Uh, that's a great question. And, you know, I've personally been very happy to see that, you know, overall spending in Massachusetts has come below the cost growth benchmark. Um, and AIM was an early advocate for this when this law was actually even being debated on Beacon Hill. Um, there weren't a lot of proponents that there should be a cost growth benchmark and to measure how we're doing. Um, and it really was um, um, the GBIO and AIM, right. that, and, and you were part of that I effort. I was working <laughs> hand-to-hand with you at the time. Yeah. The, um, Boston interface, interface organization. Yes, right. Um, which kind of was like strange bedfellows working together to advocate that we should have a benchmark. So was very happy that the final legislation included that. Um, in terms of how our members feel, um, we were beginning to show that there's uh, the larger employers are feeling like healthcare growth, spending growth, is has been under control the last several years. Of course, they have a lot more tools. Um, 
to deal with healthcare costs. They can self-insure. They can design their own benefit plans. They're in a much better position to educate their employees. They just have more resources at their disposal. Um, and so the bigger employers seem to not see healthcare inflation as the, you know, kind of real challenge it might have been 10 years ago. For smaller employers, however, particularly in the small group market, which is 50 and under, um, you know, they don't have those tools, the resources, they're in that market um, that's group rated. And those premium increases continue to be over the spending benchmark, which currently is 3.1, was 3.6. So they don't feel as comfortable about our success here. And so um, we have more work to do. Let me dive a little bit more into that because you mentioned the employees. And if you look at reported averages of employee cost sharing for in healthcare at the time of service, that those have actually increased considerably, you know, over these last 10, 15 years. Again, uh, is that true from from the AIM constituency perspective in terms of what's happening with their employees? And do, and do the employers see that as a problem? Well, you're absolutely right that the cost sharing um, over the last 10 to 15 years has increased dramatically. And probably the most significant change has been the adoption of high deductible health plans by kind of employers of now every size, from small to large and everything in between, as a way to, you know, deal with, you know, healthcare inflation that wasn't sustainable. Um, you know, companies provide health insurance to their employees as a, as a benefit, um, but it's also a cost of doing business. Um, you know, in order to be competitive, they need to, um, you know, address the cost of doing business and in a way to um, make sure that they stay competitive in a global environment. So um, double-digit increases, which we were experiencing 10 years ago, just uh, weren't sustainable for those employers. So, yeah, there was a big shift in more um, cost-sharing for employees. I think that slowed considerably. Um, We do a benefit survey at AIM every two years, um, and what we've seen in the last couple of years is that cost sharing has slowed down as premiums have uh, moderated. And, you know, employers are also sensitive to the fact that, you know, they don't want to overburden their employees with costs that are not sustainable. So um, um, they do what they have to do in order to be competitive, but, um, you know, they're also very concerned about not making it too expensive for their employees. So let's, Rick, take a step back. So in the United States and in Massachusetts, roughly more than half of everybody gets health insurance through their employer, either their significant other or themselves. Massachusetts may be a little bit higher than the national average, but it's all in that ballpark. Um, Does that make sense to you? Um, Does it make sense that uh, we rely on employers to provide such a large bulk of the health insurance coverage in the United States? Well, that's a great question, John. Um, you know, we're, we're in the situation we are kind of due to an accident of history. You know, it was during World War II when there were wage and price controls on um, employers couldn't give salary increases. So they started offering benefits like health insurance. And, and that became the way that, as you said, most employees, people in the workforce now get their health insurance through their employer. Um, If we had to start all over again, I don't think the three of us would design the system that we have. Um, 
On the other hand, I don't see us moving off. I know there's a lot of discussion, certainly at the national level, in this presidential debate about Medicare for all. Um, I don't see us going off in that direction, at least in, in the near future. Um, most people are comfortable with the current system. Um, you know, we've made it work as best we can. Um, and I always think about Massachusetts in 2006. We said, okay, we have an employer-based system, but we have 10% of the people uninsured. Let's fill in the gaps um, rather than redesign the system. Um, and that's exactly what we did. And in two years, you know, almost everybody here was insured. So I think we can build on the current system if, um, if the rest of the country um, would be able to work as well as we did here in Massachusetts back then. I think, though, what some people don't understand, and particularly people who perhaps are really fervent believers in Medicare for all or some kind of nationalized health care system, why do employers oppose taking this burden off their back? What do mm -hmm. people not, and to, to a lot of folks who are listening, yeah. they just don't get it. Why yeah. would employers not leap at the opportunity to be free of this massive obligation and burden that most of the time has nothing to do with the product or service that they sell? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, health insurance is an important component of the benefits that employers offer to their workers, um, and particularly in an economy like we have here right now, where almost everybody is employed. So attracting and retaining qualified workers is a challenge. The the benefit package that employers offer are part of the way they attract um, the types of employees that they're looking for. So it's part of their compensation strategy. Um, and so that's one reason they wouldn't want to see it go. Um, secondly, I think they feel they have more control, particularly in the larger ones, because they can self-insure, they can design their benefit plans, um, provide some more flexibility, and would be concerned about you know, losing all of that and having it taken over nationally. Um, and then third, you know, I think there's a lot of evidence that commercial insurance rates to providers help subsidize the public payers like Medicare and Medicaid. Um, so it's not like employers aren't going to be paying into a national system, and who knows what they'll be paying um, in order to finance a, uh, if we did go, for example, to Medicare for all. So it's not like they're going to be off the hook. Um, you know, they'll be um, paying into that system in some way, and um, and I think at least right now they feel more comfortable with what we the system we currently have, mm -hmm. even if it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> well. Um, you know, as I said at the beginning, um, you know, we've had this system for 80 years. Um, it's what everybody is used to. Um, you know, change is difficult, and the unknown creates a lot of uncertainties. And, you know, employers certainly like predictability um, and, and certainty. Um, so um, to, to completely um, leave the current employer-based system to go to something else, um, I think would create just a lot of uncertainty that they wouldn't be comfortable with. Okay, let's let's shift. You you were <laughs> one of the original members of the board of the Massachusetts Health Connector. Yeah. And also since its inception, you've been one of the members and still are of the Health Policy Commission. Yes. So two key crucial roles. Now you're just on the Health Policy Commission. Mm -hmm. um, 
How do you feel the Health Policy Commission has done? How's it performed and how's it met its responsibilities? Do you regard, can you give it a grade in terms of how well you think it succeeded and performed? Yeah, um, let's see. I think I would give it an A minus. Um, that's you know, a good grade where I come yeah, from. Yes, yeah. That is a, <laughs> that always <laughs> easy to earn. Yeah. Although I thought there was great inflation yeah. at Harvard, John, isn't there? Um, that too. <laughs> um, Just like in healthcare. Yeah. All right. Exactly. Um, you know, so the Health Policy Commission was really set up to focus on the cost of health insurance and was given a lot of responsibilities, health care, I should say, and given a lot of responsibilities to, and tools um, to try to do that. Um, you know, I think, as I said earlier, the, the fact that that statute included a, a cost growth benchmark has been really important because it, it's, it's shined the light on how we're doing every year. Um, which before that nobody paid much attention as rates and costs and spending went up in double-digit increases. So um, all the work around that, so the cost trends report, the cost trends hearing, the identification of cost drivers, I think has all been really positive and um, given us some vital information about, you know, what's driving our healthcare system. I think also um, the fact that we were given not complete authority, as you know, but some authority over mergers and acquisitions that take place in the healthcare marketplace has also been important. Um, and, you know, as you know, back in 2013 and 14, uh, when Partners was looking to expand in Massachusetts by acquiring South Shore Hospital in the Hallmark system, which is just north of Boston, um, you know, we looked at the Health Policy Commission, looked at that potential acquisition and decided that it was going to increase costs significantly. And so, you know, we don't have the authority to um, approve or disapprove of those types of acquisitions or mergers, but, you know, we referred it to the AG who agreed with us, um, and that transition didn't go forward. And, you know, 15 years ago, it would have, because there was nobody really looking at those types of um, transactions in the marketplace. So, um, the fact that we have that authority, um, I think, is important as well. So, um, you know, there are, have, we haven't done everything that we um, set out to do, and I would love to see us. And the, the HPC actually is now focusing on at least one driver. There's lots of uh, examples of really wa wasteful healthcare spending, and we know that now. Like the way overuse of emergency rooms. You know, some estimates are 40% of ER visits are not appropriate. Um, we have high rates of readmissions here in Massachusetts. We way overutilize teaching and academic medical centers um, for conditions that could be treated in community hospitals. So all of that I put is, you know, that's kind of low-hanging fruit. You know, most people wouldn't disagree that if we could take that spending out of the system, that would be a good thing. Um, and so right now, in the employer community is leading this effort to reduce the inappropriate use of ERs. And, you know, I was very involved with that at AIM with the Mass Taxpayers Foundation, Eileen McEnany. That effort is um, continuing to go on. Um, I'm really hopeful that they'll show some progress um, and then it, tackle maybe another one of those um, cost drivers. So, um, so, yeah, there's certainly more to be done, but um, I think the Health Policy Commission um, under the leadership of Stuart Altman as the chair and David Sells as the executive director. Um, 
have really done a very good job. And I know lots of states have looked at Massachusetts and uh, have or want to replicate what we've done here. Rick, you know, you, you mentioned the, the consolidation issue in mergers and acquisitions, sure. which remains active here in Massachusetts <laughs> and yep. around the country. You mentioned the, the partners one, which ultimately at the hospital level it didn't go forward. Yep. But uh, even though it's it's past us now, any any thoughts about the B.I. Leahy yep. merger, which was put forward under the idea and ultimately approved that it actually could be a good thing potentially for the market by competing against partners? What were, what were your thoughts about all of that? Yeah, that certainly was the argument that the proponents of the B.I. Leahy merger put forward, that they were lower-cost providers and yet high-quality and that they have an attractive brand name and that as a group, as a merged entity, they could compete with partners. Um, and and to the extent that consumers... Um, shop around for their care and choose that lower cost alternative, um, we could lower healthcare spending here in Massachusetts. Um, that was the rationale, basically, for um, approving that merger. Um, I do think it's inherent upon the HPC, and here's where we probably could do a better job. Um, after these transactions occur, I think we need to do a better job of looking back to see whether we've achieved what was promised um, during um, those um, conversations. So, um, you know, that, that one's obviously way too early to, to, to know um, what the outcome is going to be. But um, let me ask you a question that's a little bit forward-looking, although one that does not technically come under the HPC's jurisdiction. Right. We heard a week or two ago that now <laughs> two of our uh, large nonprofit insurers are proposing to merge. Yeah. Uh, well, do you think that'll be a good thing if it happens for uh, our state residents and, and your businesses or, or, or not? Yeah, that's a great one, Paul. Um, you know, I hadn't any previous knowledge that even those conversations were going on. So um, I haven't had a lot of chance to think about it. And, um, and I haven't heard from the players, you know, um, you know, what they hope to accomplish um, with that merger. So I guess I, I'll refrain from commenting on that other than, um, you know, I don't think, I think individual mergers and acquisitions really do have to be looked at on their own. I think it's, you can't say all are bad or none are bad. Look, or, at, look, at, look at each one in the facts yeah, tied to it. Yeah, I mean, that's what I would recommend. And yeah, I guess I'm just not in a position not having had an okay. opportunity to... Um, study that one in any great detail. Are there any structural changes that you think might be helpful in terms of the oversight of this activity of mergers and acquisitions and consolidations and so forth? Or do you think we've got the tools in place to do with it? And was Beth Israel Leahy an example where it worked well or there might have been uh, some other authority that might have been called for it? You know, it, good question, John. I actually, um, you know, there was some debate, as you know, when um, this law was being passed about whether the HPC could actually stop, you know, an, a merger or acquisition from going forward, and they weren't given that authority. Um, the authority was to do a, um, a cost analysis and then um, provide that information to the attorney general. Um, we have a very engaged attorney general um, who's very active in the healthcare space, and it feels to me like um, the current uh, situation that we have is, is working the way legislators intended it to. So, um, at the moment, I would say um, 
things are in a good in a good place. Okay, so stepping back, thirty five years in health policy from the yep. legislative point of view and from the aim point of view. So quite a vantage point to look at the big waves and big periods yep. of change in which you've been in the middle of them uh, more often than not. Um, any, any observations about the Massachusetts health system, health policy making um, that stick in your mind is particularly important, particularly for people yep. who are listening who haven't had that experience? So I'll share a really interesting experience from my perspective. Um, so, John, you know this very well since you were a leader of this effort. In 1988, when Mike Dukakis was our governor, um, the legislature passed the universal health care law. Um, and um, it had a pretty significant employer mandate. At the time, it was $1,680 per person, which back 30 years ago was a big number. Um, the employer community in general um, was not at all supportive of that law. Um, and, you know, and I'm not sure how actively they participated in the conversations. And um, But um, anyway, we passed a law with the business community opposed. Um, that was in 1988. There was a long um, implementation cycle to that law, so things weren't going to happen for four to four years. Um, so after it passed, as everybody knows, um, Bill Weld won the governorship in 1990. One of his platforms was repealing the state's universal health care law. I went to AIM, and um, one of their top priorities was repealing the state's universal health care law. So it was a law that I was very instrumental in helping to pass and put together. And, and then I was going to an organization that wanted to see it not uh, be implemented. Um, and as you know, most of it was a couple of Small pieces were implemented. Most of it wasn't, and it was eventually repealed. Um, we really, in, we did some good things in the 90s. Um, as you know, the CHIP program, and John, you were very involved in that, um, where we helped to insure um, kids um, by increasing the cigarette tax, and AIM supported that. But we really didn't get back to serious conversation about universal health care until 2004 or five, um, And... This time, the situation was really different, and I think the key um, policy leaders, including Governor Romney and the Speaker and the Senate President, wanted the business community to be at the table, and they really wanted to pass something that the business community support. And, you know, AIM, you know, I was the CEO then, and my colleagues at the other groups like the Chamber and the Taxpayers and the Roundtable felt the same, that we needed to be at the table, we needed to be part of the conversation, and with the, hopefully the goal of coming to something that we could all support. And and that's exactly what we did. And that was such a great accomplishment, and it, which showed me that, you know, if you can get the stakeholders at the table and everybody's willing to give, um, that you can accomplish some great things. Um, and, um, and, and we did so. And you know, after that, I went around to lots of states because states were interested in how did this ever happen in Massachusetts. And, you know, I would say that the most important thing is you got to have everybody in the room. And and maybe because Massachusetts is kind of unique in that we all, it's kind of a small state, and we all, the stakeholders kind of know each other pretty well, and we have that respect and trust. And um, But it enabled us to do something that, you know, became um, the model for the rest of the country. And um, so... Um, get everybody in the room, 
um, encourage people to compromise and um, and have a shared goal, which the, ours was, you know, everybody will have insurance at the we end of this. We used to have the four big leaders from the business community, you from Associated Industries, Paul Guzzi from the Chamber of Commerce, Alan McDonald from the Mass Business Roundtable, and Mike Widmer from the Mass Taxpayers Foundation. All four now have stepped down. You were the last one to do it. Right. What about the new generation of business leaders? Do you see a change or do you see a continuation of that prior attitude that you folks brought to the table? Yeah, I think you'll see a continuation, John, of, of that. Um, you know, there hasn't been a lot of legislative activity on health care in the last few years when all of these um, transitions occurred. Um, and myself and my counterparts um, retiring after many years in those jobs. So um, there hasn't been the visible role that there might have been 10 or 12 years ago. Um, and it's funny, the legislature, I think, now has they're happy with the role of the Health Policy Commission, and they tend to delegate lots of things there that might otherwise be dealt with in legislation. So, um, but I, I'm sure and I'm confident that to the extent that this legislative activity or public policy activity in the healthcare arena, that those groups will continue to step up. Because even though healthcare premiums have moderated, they're still a big ticket item and um, we need to be vigilant. Okay. Paul. Here's a final question then. Uh, do you see anything happening between now and next uh, July, the end of this session, on any of the health care issues that have been sort of sitting out there a little mm. bit, the pharma issue-related discussion yeah. or uh, out of network care? Any, any thoughts about the current issues <laughs> about where it might yeah. go? Oof. Um, well, having left in May, I've been happy not to have been um, uh, front and center on, you know, kind of the public policy issues facing the legislature. I mean, you know, the Speaker and the Senate President had both said that health care policy is on their agenda. Um, you know, the House in particularly seems to want to address um, community hospitals and their role in making sure they're financially stable. Um, there are a lot of people that want to look at pharma um, costs, um, uh, you know, there's certainly other examples of things that various stakeholders would like to see. Um, it's a great question. I mean, the legislature passed a, um, almost, the House and Senate both last year passed health care bills in July and couldn't reach a compromise. Um, there were lots of things on the table at that time. Um, so it's a great question. Um, I would say 50-50. Okay. Well, at least you'll be able to see it no longer as, as the head of AIM. That's right. So, I'll be happy to watch from the sidelines. Rick Lord, we appreciate your time today and uh, sharing a little bit both about your history and, and, and your thoughts about things. So thank you very much. And congratulations. Yes. Great. Well, thanks, John and Paul, for having me. It's been a pleasure. Our pleasure, too.